From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Houston, Texas. On this week's edition, the first corporate climate casualty, why mobility is a climate change issue, a new corporate alliance to end plastic waste, and why soil is fertile ground for drawing down carbon. Carbon farming, can you dig it? This week on 350. It's January 18th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me back from vacay across the Pacific is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Aloha, Heather. Greetings and salutations, Joel. Did you have a great time in Hawaii? Yeah, I know you're there to see your mom, but I assume you got some Hawaiian time in as well. I did some diving. Nice. I did some diving. I saw another whale shark. Very cool. Very, very cool. It's one of those, that's one of those big holy grail kind of sightings. So anyway, yeah, it was awesome. I managed to come back with a bit of a cold, um, probably because I spent so much time sucking air through a regulator, (laughs) but uh, it was super, um, it's interesting because the island is so different uh, right now than it was back in June when I was there, when the volcano was still erupting and you can see the change in the climate, if you will, the the fog, the volcanic fog that has been hanging over the island for months and so forth, actually years, mm-hmm. um, it was was gone. It was quite am- amazing how much clearer it was. Sorry about the cold. I can hear the sound of a couple thousand tiny violins breaking out among our listeners, but you know, um, I'm sure that uh, it isn't any more fun, particularly when you're flying all that distance with the cold. But I'm glad you're back. Glad you had a good week. Um, what a crazy week. I mean, I, it's sort of become the thing you say now because every week is kind of like that. But we had, um, I mean, PG&E, as you talked about, the first corporate climate casualty. I mean, mm-hmm, what, what, mm-hmm. what's going on there? You know, it's, it's amazing. And, and this is kind of a running thing with, with you guys back there in Oakland, California. I know you're not there exactly at this moment, but in Oakland, um, you know, the big talk always is PG&E and all the amazing things they've been doing with um, the clean energy transition from all of the energy efficiency programs they've running been running, of course, to their renewables investments and all of the electric vehicle things that it's thinking about. And boom, now here's here's that that great, great, great. But the irony is is this: they're still responsible for transmission lines, and it to- totally turns out that um, unfortunately uh, they are liable for the the some of the campfire, the fires that have been breaking out in in California. I didn't realize uh, until recently that some of the high transmission lines were were linked back to those fires. And it's it's a tragedy of the highest order. Um, But what's also true is the fact that they're liable for those damages, which could right. total up to thirty billion dollars, so which hence the bankruptcy. Ha- hence uh, the bankruptcy. Fi- yep. They didn't file it this yep. week, but they said they were going to. And of course, they lost their CEO, Geisha Williams, which is too bad because um, she's uh, generally really well regarded. But I, I guess she took the fall there. Um, but this uh, just such an interesting time for utility because it's not. You mentioned the Camp Fire, which was one of the the the, the biggest fire I think in, in California history. But there were over a thousand fires to which uh, have been linked to transmission lines in PG and E. And so, this is a, a a challenge. And you know, and and yes, it, it links to climate change because the the. It was tinder. It was dry. It was not, not a lot of rainfall. That, and there may have been some forest management practices, although that's debatable. Um, that you know that could should have been done, um, and um, it's this is uh, I'm afraid uh, a foreshadowing of, of of things to come. Yeah, and the irony is, of course, that it could derail some of the the, the transition things that we need to happen. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll see about that. I, I think PG&E would tell you. Um, that uh, that's not going to slow anything down, but we'll, we'll see. By the way, um, we'll talk about why I'm in Houston, uh, but for the same reason, it's well, I'm in Houston because this is the January is one of our three months where we have meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network, and this this week it's being hosted 
uh, by NRG, the, the big um, American energy company that's headquartered both here and in Princeton, and um, maybe more on that a little bit later in the show. But next week, we'll be at uh, PG&E headquarters <laughs> in San Francisco and um, be interesting to you know what they want to talk about there and, and but 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 to get a little bit of the uh, the inside scoop about um you know how this uh forthcoming bankruptcy might actually be impeding things yeah well at the very least and and i guess we'll move on from here at the very least it will delay their ability to negotiate on certain things and to introduce new things so it is like i said it is ironic um, yeah. in my mind Well, let's keep moving forward. And in this case, we'll move forward to take a look back at the Week in Review. So I will start us off, Joel. I'll take the reins. Uh, One of the things that I found, one of the stories I found fascinating, just because I think about this issue a lot, is the piece on shareholder activism that was written by Julie Gort, or Gorte, I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. Senior Vice President for Sustainable Investing with Impax Asset Management and Pax World Funds. And she writes about the, what's going on at the Securities and Exchange Commission to reconsider. Well, there's, I, I'll, I'll step back a moment and say that, um, that you know, it's clearly about shareholder activism and the, the motivation for it. Um, and there's a, there's a group of, of, of organizations that is trying to basically thwart shareholder resolutions and, and kind of put the damper on, on how many are coming out. Um, they believe, because there's been quite a few of them in the past year, focused on, on things like social issues and environmental issues, they're trying to put the kibosh on, on um, those coming out. They think it, it, that it's preventing things from, from, you know, preventing companies from focusing on strong financial performance. Well, the argument that Julie makes is that this is exactly why some of these, these resolutions are coming out. We've seen quite a few from very respectable institutional investors that are asking questions about the risks um, that companies face based on climate issues, on environmental issues, on social issues as well. And her point is that this is an absolutely fundamentally a financial issue. It is about creating long-term value and that these resolutions are focused on that. The flip side is, of course, that, that the, the deniers and so forth believe that they're, they're sort of politically motivated, that, that, that people are trying to uh, get in the way of capitalism and so forth. That's the sort of skeptical uh, um, argument. But I love this piece because it makes a really strong case for why um, these activist investors are going to uh, help, help the cause, if you will. Yeah, she refers to this uh, AstroTurf front group called the Main Street Investor Coalition, which, despite the Main Street uh, Investor uh, moniker, is really the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, the typical list of sort of retrogressive, uh, regressive, I guess, uh, uh, organizations that are always trying to either uh, maintain the status quo by thwarting uh, you know, progressive climate or, or activism issues, or in some cases, roll things back. And in this case, they've launched a major effort to convince the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that the shareholder resolution process that's been around for some number of decades needs to be fixed in some fashion. Um, and their fashion is to make it harder to, to uh, file these kinds of things. And so that's... Uh, um, they say it's a ball and chain that hampers public corporations, capital formation, and financial performance. Investors, of course, say this is actually part, as you said, of of, of risk management. And um, it, it relates very closely to a piece that I did in, in Green Buzz, the Monday newsletter that, that, that I write, um, around just this whole movement that we've been tracking and we're going to be reporting on more and more and more because it's just become... Uh, one of the the major issues that we see coming around the the mainstreaming of of environmental social and governance issues ESG as it's known and and the growth of of fin- climate related financial disclosures to companies being encouraged and ultimately required probably uh, to disclose you know what are the impacts of climate change on your company and supply chain and and what you know, under different scenarios are likely to happen. And so this all fits together. 
and it really is about uh, investor risk, plain and simple. No, you know, just as much uh, as so many other topics, uh, you know, around uh, what the impacts of, of market risks or like a recession, inflation or changing interest rates or other things can affect investor returns. And now we've gotten to the point, finally, <laughs> after talking about this for so long that that the vanguards and the state streets and the black rocks of the world, the big uh, money management firms and big uh, institutional investment firms uh, are now starting to to really take this under wing and, and start to press companies. How much so? There's a lot of controversy about BlackRock and because Larry Fink, their pre- CEO, did this letter back a, a year ago. There's annual letter talking about companies need to step up and there's some protest movements or some activist groups that are saying, yeah, we, we agree completely, but you're, you, BlackRock, aren't actually walking your talk. This is going to be a messy situation for a long time, but this conversation has hit the mainstream. Yeah, one final thought. These, these don't have to be big groups that push these things. Um, we, we're seeing some shareholder resolutions at, for, against Amazon or for Amazon, right, from their employees that are asking for more uh, climate action. And there was a really interesting uh, item I saw this past week about Verizon. There was a shareholder resolution there um, from a, one of their unions pushing pushing the company to get more into renewables and boom guess what they announced they announced a better um, stronger renewable energy procurement policy so we're seeing also the uh, positive impact that these things can have well let's move the conversation literally move to mobility um katie fehrenbacher uh our lead on uh, transportation and mobility uh desk uh, wrote a wrote a piece about uh, mobility becoming a climate change issue. Now, we've been talking about this for a long time, but what I think what's news here is that companies like Uber are now starting to see that uh, and that they have a role in taking on climate change, and that's new. Yeah, and Katie's, uh, yeah, it was interesting that she had a conversation with the founder of Uber about this um, many, many moons ago uh, when they launched and kind of was probing then whether it could be considered green. And at the, the, I think that part of the point she's making is that many of the companies in this movement haven't really thought about their, their impact on climate, on emissions, on other things in the way that they should have. Um, and there's a, there's a couple of great reports she cites, including one from the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. And it talks about how cities are planning their uh, mass transit systems and how Many of those systems have been not very well planned. The report makes a point. They look at 28 cities and kind of evaluate how well-matched their public transportation systems are to the needs of residents. And it's interesting because some cities like Memphis, Nashville, and San Antonio, it turns out that only like a very small percentage of the populations in those cities live near their routes, right? So the, the routes weren't very well planned, not that many people can get to them. And so they're therefore, therefore not being very you know, well utilized. The flip side is that in places like Minneapolis, where they've thought about this in a, in a more holistic way, long-term way, 88% of Minneapolis's jobs are near frequent twa- transit, which is kind of really cool. 73% of its residents as well which means that they can avail themselves of these systems. In other places, like back, back to the Memphis-Nashville example, they have to use cars. You, they've they've got to use cars because there just really isn't a place to get there. So it's just, a, it's just a, another reminder of, uh, especially with, with the emissions from the transportation sector com- continuing to rise, why the whole corporate um, campus siting, like where these things are, are put, um, and and how the systems are planned around them, why it's such an important thing for us to be thinking about. And, and it's a little bit scary because infrastructure, we use that word a lot and they're just, they're, it's so broken. The planning process is so broken. Mm. The, the funding process is so broken. It's, it's, a, it's a bit scary, actually. Well, there's a lot more to come on this. Uh, Katie reports that this week, the World Resources Institute um, launched a new initiative uh, spearheaded by our good friend Robin Chase, who's the co-founder of Zipcar, Buzzcar, and Venium. This new initiative is called the New Urban Mobility Alliance, NUMO, 
uh, which is going to promote shared electric on-demand and autonomous technologies that, quote, put us on a path to active, equitable, emissions-free cities as quickly as possible. And there was a this week a two-day conference in Washington, D.C., hosted uh, at the Ross Center, part of WRI, uh, looking at the question of will new mobility deliver sustainable transport for all? And that's a really important question and one that's uh, the, the jury's still out of how much of, you know, for example, Uber and Lyft are uh, uh, only going to well-to-do people in city centers, which also happen to be the, where the best mass transit is. And so is it really just bringing more cars in the city center and, and what's going on there? And is it accessible, increasing access? Are these scooters and bikes that are in cities increasing access to people who might not otherwise have the ability to get around as quick as easily as they want? So these are really important questions. And as I've long, long said, mobility is a prerequisite to sustainability. Sustainability writ large, not just the environmental but social, in, in terms of in, ensuring and increasing people's ability to do shopping and get, hold jobs and get education and healthcare and things like that. Um, we will see, uh, hopefully, Robin, who is just uh, uh, clearly, I know this word is overused, but she really qualifies as a visionary. Um, is going to uh, you know take this as far as as it can go, and I, I look forward to seeing that. And then there's a story that you did, Heather, about sort of the next generation of renewable energy procurement. What's going on? So I geek out about this stuff, Joel. I know you know that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that you do. I know. But one of the most common concerns um, when it comes to corporate procurement of renewable energy is that the smaller companies, mid-market companies, I mean, these are not companies that are, you know, tens of millions of dollars, but it could be a billion dollar company, mid-market companies, is that they want to procure clean power, but they don't have enough demand or enough lawyers, frankly, to take on the risk of power purchase agreements. So we've been looking at the aggregation model, which basically is a model in which companies come together to to sign a contract, to support a project, and to sign a power purchase agreement for some new solar farm or wind farm or so forth. There was a really great example of this last fall when Apple came together with Swiss Re, um, Akamai and Etsy to, to help something out. And now we have a new one. This is, and what makes this particularly fascinating is it's, it's a, a collaboration of, of equals. It's Bloomberg, Cox Enterprises, Gap, Salesforce, and Workday. They have come together to buy 42.5 megawatts of a project that is um, being developed by Baywa. It's a solar farm in North Carolina. And the deal was orchestrated by Level 10 Energy, which is basically creating a platform for connecting renewable energy buyers and sellers. So it's a great example of, of how a smaller, quote, smaller, end quote, company can get involved. The, the, the different companies are each taking anywhere from 5 to 10 megawatts of this larger contract. The contracts are uniform. In other words, they have standard terms and conditions. And there was one lawyer that that did it on their behalves. They came together at a, a conference that was run by the Business Renewable Center, which is the Rocky Mountain Institute program. But what Level 10 is trying to do is create a template for scaling this so that Potentially, we could see other contracts similar to this in the future, but it's just a great example of, of how this movement is evolving and the creativity that corporate buyers are demonstrating when it comes to procuring renewables. So what will this change that, uh, what will happen that hasn't happened before from this? So what happened in this particular one is a couple of things. One is that, first of all, it took a, it was pretty quick, the, relatively speaking. It took about a year for this to come together. And I know that sounds probably like a long time, but in my experience, many of the deals that are coming into place for, you know, that we see announced by the big guys like Google or Microsoft take a couple years to negotiate. So it could enable projects to, to be done more quickly. What level 10 is going to do is take the, the contract that was used for this project and they're essentially going to use it as a template for future, for future projects. So the companies will, are, smaller companies are able to go into this platform, put in their con- sort of terms and conditions that they're looking for, and that information will be 
if you will, mashed up with the other information that's coming in. And level 10 is hoping to sort of match potential buyers and sellers. So, right. So the, the group that, that just announced this deal happened to meet each other at a conference and they kind of, they told two friends and so forth, that kind of came thing. <laughs> I love that's why we do conferences. Right, exactly. We love it. Uh, but it's not very, that's not a very scalable model, to be quite frank. There's a lot of organizations that want to do this, but that might not have those connections. So what could happen as a result of this is that Level 10 is, is in particular going to use this information to help allow a model for others to, to try to do this in, in a more auto- automated fashion. So we could see more deals like about like this one. They were very coy about that. They wouldn't tell me if there's any others. They, you know, they suggested that there are others in the pipeline, but couldn't quite say. It's always up to the buyers, frankly, to announce them. But uh, it really does create a, a model in which this is more of these deals are possible because the, the aggregations that we've seen in the past have been, number one, many of them have been anchored by a very large buyer. So in the case of the Apple deal, Apple, the, 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 the total on that one was about 290 megawatts of total capacity that was bought by those four companies. But Apple by, took by far the largest chunk of that. And essentially, the other three companies kind of rode in on, on, its, on its buying clout. I also saw another model, uh, again, though, pretty large companies, um, Google, uh, uh, Asco Noble, DSM, Philips, they all came together to do some some work in the Netherlands. It's similar, but they all had to put in their own lawyers. They're all sort of equally involved. I mean, it, it was it was just more complex. So the, the the value of this deal is the fact that it's much simpler than the deals in the past. It's replicable and it, you know, hopefully is scalable. One of the many visitors to the Green Biz office this week is my old friend Peter Bick of Carbon Nation and Arizona State University. Been working on a really interesting project for a number of years around carbon soil sequestration. Um, and well, Peter, let, tell us a little bit about it. But really, we talked about this. I've written about it a few times, I think. But what's going on? Where are you in this project? Well, we've, we've gotten the place where we wanted to do the research to really find out if what these innovative ranchers and farmers are doing, we're talking about adaptive multi-paddock grazing, very different from conventional grazing, if what they're doing is actually drawing down more greenhouse gases than emitting. So could the methane from the animal be weaker than the carbon that's coming down to and being stored in the soil? So we're we're studying farms in the southeast U.S. comparing adaptive multi-paddock grazing with conventional grazing, and we're looking at a number of metrics like soil carbon amounts, greenhouse gas cycling, water cycling, and health of the animals, the, the, uh, the well-being of the farmers. And McDonald's is our biggest funder. We've got a lot of other funders involved like Wrangler and Timberland and Exxon. And we're, we want to find out if this type of grazing is actually a greenhouse gas sink or is it just a much, much better way of, of grazing? And that's a really key point. So adaptive multi-paddock grazing, AMP grazing, it's, it's, yeah. it's about uh, something to do with moving cows around yeah. the land yeah. and, and break it down a little bit what happens here. Okay. Well, our films are the best to talk about that. So the website is soilcarboncowboys.com. You can see all 10 of our short films. But it's basically bison biomimicry. It's basically how the bison moved around the Great Plains, and they would move in herds. They would hit an area really hard with their hooves. They'd pee, they'd poo, they'd stir up the soil, which stimulated seed growth. They'd eat half the forage, not all of it, just like we eat half of an asparagus, not all of it, and then they move on. And it's that heavy hit and rest, which is the way the grasslands and the bison co-evolved over hundreds of thousands of years. The farmers are replicating that on their smaller 1,000-acre, 2,000-acre Uh, farms and ranches, and the results are they're stimulating the soil microbial life, which is stimulating the productivity of the land, which is making making it so that they're growing a hell of a lot more forage, which means they can produce more animals on the same land with the same rainfall. So we're seeing farmers that are doubling, tripling, and quadrupling the amount of food they can produce on their land, and a lot of these farmers are producing other things as well as the, 
the, the cattle they're grazing, they're raising chickens on that same land, they're growing corn on that same land. So they're getting a lot out of the land, which the old way of thinking about agriculture is take, take, take. Every time you grow something on the land, you're taking from it. What these folks are showing that as long as you're stimulating and focusing on the soil microbial life, you're actually regenerating the land and you're giving to the land and the land is then becoming much more robust. So the land's becoming more robust because the soil's healthier and it's sequestering carbon. How much carbon, how much of a solution is this? Well, it's drawing down carbon through photosynthesis, right? And so the more plants you have on the land, the more opportunity you have to use sunlight, to use CO2. Those root structures, the more biodiversity of the plants, the more biodiversity of the soil microbial life, the bacteria, the fungi, therefore the more resilient the system. Right? So you've got that. Now, um, Richard Teague's work in Texas, who's one of our lead scientists, he was showing that amp grazing versus, uh, versus uh, basically conventional grazing is storing three tons of carbon more per hectare per year than, than the conventional. Okay, so that's a big number, and a lot of scientists are like, there's no way that could be, how did he get that? But his work is published, and, and we're going to be verifying that kind of thing. So let's just take it down to if you just got one, one ton of carbon per hectare per year stored, back of the envelope, we have 3.5 billion hectares of grazing land on earth, not land for farming, but land for grazing, which is less, basically a less quality land. Um, then that, if you got one ton in each of those hectares every year, that's 3.5 gigatons. Wow. Annually. And all it's doing is making the land better. And a lot of people say, yeah, okay, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to taper off after a while. If you're 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, you're going to fill up that soil with the carbon, and then that solution won't be viable anymore. Well, there's a couple of questions I have about that, and we need more research to answer these questions. But question one is, how do you know that? And the part B of that, of that question is a statement, we've lost up to 90% of the carbon in our soils in the U.S., so that sounds like you have a long time to fill up that pool. Question B is... That's suggesting that we're not actually building the roof of the soil world. And we're seeing ranchers that are actually adding more soil to their land. It's actually building up. So the actual vessel, the bathtub, the pool is getting bigger. So if the pool is getting bigger, how do you get to an equilibrium? And the pool's getting bigger because all those microbes are breeding and they're using CO2 as their feedstock. And the microbes themselves are a big part of what makes up soil. This is a podcast, so you can't see Peter's use of his hands in describing that, but that, the hands definitely helped. So, Peter, you mentioned that McDonald's is one of your principal funders. Yep. Why is McDonald's interested in this? A couple of reasons. Um, they understand that their customers want to have a healthy food, and the customers want to know where the food's produced. So a lot of the times when you, when you go to the producers of the food, you realize that the folks who are the most innovative are the ones that are focused on their soil health. So that's a great story and it's a great truth. Um, the second part of that is, and this is why we're doing the research, could these innovative farmers be giving us a tool to slow down climate change? So that's a, that's a big plus for McDonald's. The third one is their investors are asking them questions about their own resilience. Uh, Green Business, your work today. Uh, was talking about investors asking questions about companies and how they're dealing with potential risk. Well, if, if your supply chain is based on nature and nature is getting more un, un, unpredictable, what are you going to do about it? So the more they can have a resilient supply chain, the more resilient the company is going down the line. And, and, and so they've been a great partner. I'm really excited. So real quickly, give us a sense of when will you know how this is working? Yeah, so uh, we'll be getting... For the work we're doing right now, which is on 10 farms in the southeast U.S., we did a lot of research in 2018. We're going to continue research and analysis in 2019. December of 2019 is when my science team will be reporting to our funders the data, and then we start releasing papers to get published in early 2020. Wow. Can't wait to find out what. Well, soil carbon, definitely a fertile topic if ever there was one. <laughs> Peter Bick from Carbon Nation and Arizona State University. Thanks for stopping by, Peter. Thank you, Joe.
One of the big announcements this week was the creation of a, an alliance of global companies from the plastics and consumer goods value chain to create an organization called the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. It's about 30 big companies. They committed over $1 billion and plan to invest even more than that over the next five years to help end plastic waste in the environment. This is really interesting. I've been hearing about this for about a year. Uh, It's headed up uh, in many ways. One of the coordinating groups is the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. But the companies involved um, are really, it's a lot of the the, the chemical companies, BASF and Brascom, Chevron Phillips Chemical Company, Dow, ExxonMobil, and Mitsubishi, Mitsui, Oxychem, which is part of Occidental Petroleum, and then um, and, and others, Sabic, which is or Sabic, which is the uh, Saudi Arabian Basic Industries um, Corporation, and then a couple of big, uh, but only two uh, so far, big consumer products companies, Procter and Gamble, and Henkel, based in in Dusseldorf, Germany, to look at how they work together to end plastic waste. Uh, I remember talking to one of these companies a year ago uh, and, and maybe more than that, and they said, you know, from our perspective, plastics is not the problem. Plastic waste is the problem. And so they've come together to take this on and, and they are going to be doing a number of things. They're, uh, first of all, investing a bunch of money. They're working with um, Circulate Capital, an organization we know well uh, by our friend Rob Kaplan, um, that was spun out, we've written about, uh, which is looking to ha- invest money in um, the infrastructure in the developing world, particularly in Asia, to create new business models and infrastructure to uh, that prevent ocean plastic waste and improve uh, waste management and recycling, again, primarily in Southeast Asia. Um, we're going to be working with cities, uh, starting off, I think, with, uh, with three big cities, um, uh, they haven't named them yet, uh, but I know that one of them will be in Indonesia and the others will also probably be in Asia uh, in terms of you know, how do you partner with them? Because uh, you've probably heard all these stats before that some vast amount, um, 80% of plastics you know, start, uh, that end up in, in, in the ocean start on land and end up in rivers, and about 90% of that is in Asia. So this is a really interesting um, development and it's a part of this drumbeat of things we've been hearing for about a year year and a half now that started off with the banning of straws and continues into uh, you know a whole range of of other activities and and by the way there's that's still happening too there was a there was an announcement uh, this week from Nestle they're one of the biggest water and plastic bottled plastics companies they're going to uh, do, you know, eliminate a lot of the uh, disposable plastics by 2025. Anyway, this is just a really interesting uh, development. You know, what it will do, what impact it will have uh, is a little bit TBD, but uh, I'm all for it. I, I have two questions. I don't know if you can answer them yet, but I'm going to ask them. Sure. One is, what's that billion dollars for? Is it for new materials or recycling or what's, have they said anything about where that money will go? You know, that's the money that they're uh, investing uh, primarily through Circulate Capital, but I also understand there'll be some other vehicles as well to help build the infrastructure in Southeast Asia to capture more uh, uh, recycled plastic. Okay. And then the second question I have is how does this fit with the other things we've heard about? So there's, seems like all of a sudden there's like a million, (laughs) not a million, but a number of alliances focused on addressing the plastics problem. So are they, or excuse me, the plastic waste problem, are they working together with others? Well, this is a big collaborative effort, but I think what's different here, Heather, is that this is really an initiative of more of the plastics suppliers, the big chemical companies, the packaging companies, um, and, and a little bit of the brands, but less of the brands. Often you see uh, you know, the big obvious brands, the Cokes and Pepsis and Nestle's and Danone's and, and Procter's and Gamble's and Unilever's who are doing this. And some of those, I think, will be coming on. I think we're going to have some more companies joining this. Uh, they, there's often a, the case where they, they're not ready to be part of this at launch, but in the coming months, some of them will be, will be seeing more join. But in, in many ways, this is um, plain and simple, a supply chain enhancement, I guess, uh, play. I talked to one of the uh, the big chemical companies, and they told me that, you know, we 
can use all the recycled plastic we can get. Uh, we can, there's so much we can do. Recycled plastic, if you look at the plastic waste stream, there's actually fewer than 30 different kinds of molecules, which sounds really geeky, but the fact is that that makes it fairly simple to break them down via both uh, chemical and, and mechanical processes, chemical processes where you, well, you turn them back into, a, into, into, into the basic raw materials and mechanicals where you use, kind of use brute force to grind them down and turn them back into, uh, you know, almost a, not to the molecular level, but in small pieces that you can then turn back into the materials to make, a, let's say, a plastic bottle or something else. So it's a fairly simple process. It uses less heat, less pressure, uh, and um, it, some, there's one study, I think, out of uh, Argonne National Lab that says it uses at least 50%, or there's a 50% reduction in greenhouse gases. Um, and so, so the, the big chemical companies and plastics and packaging companies actually see this as an as a economic opportunity for them. Um, and, of course, helping to deal with an environmental and, and social problem. Uh, one of them told me and, and didn't want to be quoted, but they said, we think this is a tremendous business opportunity with more than a double-digit return. So the however many millions of dollars they're putting into this billion-dollar, so far, billion-dollar fund, um, they see a good return on investment. And so, we, you know, we think of this as, oh, they're chemical companies, it's greenwash, they're trying to be defensive, they're trying to, you know, put on a, you know, put on some kind of public front so they can look like they're doing something. I don't think that's the case here. I think they actually see this as, as I said, a, a massive business opportunity. So what else will this group be doing? Well, they're developing an open source uh, global information platform to, uh, you know, spread, uh, you know, collect data and spread metrics and standards and methodologies to governments, companies, investors, and really trying to catalyze a, uh, a plastic waste movement. I mean, we've known how to do this for a long, long time. It's just that it hasn't been done at a scale that makes it economical. And the, the technology is there. This is true of so many things in sustainability. We have the technology. We just haven't had the scale to make it really, really work. And that's what they're trying to get to here. So education, investment, some innovation, uh, local engagement is, is really what this thing is all about. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, one of these, uh, I always look at these both optimistically and with a journalist's cynicism about whether this is really something different or, uh, but I think this is not just window dressing. So I had a few minutes while I'm here in Houston to connect with Jeff Wooster, who is based here. The, he's the global sustainability leader at Dow. And Dow, along with ExxonMobil and Procter & Gamble, I think are the three big companies that really moved this initiative forward and helped to bring in the 20-some other organizations and, and create that seed money. Um, I wanted to talk to Jeff and hear more about the initiative. Here's that conversation. So Jeff, first of all, why another organization on plastics? Well, the thing that we really identified as the need and the reason why we formed the Alliance to End Plastic Waste is that there was no large-scale organization that was really driving the big-scale uh, huge solutions that are necessary to fix this problem. We know the problem of waste management in the developing world is a huge, huge problem. It's not going to be fixed by $50,000 or $100,000 pilots, although there's, those are certainly important. So we really decided that we needed to have a collective effort of lots of companies that could put a huge amount of resources together in one place, both financial resources as well as technical experience resources in order to be able to drive these large-scale solutions. So I get that there's more money needed just to build out the infrastructure. What kind of technical infrastructure is needed? What's missing? So the things that are needed are the kinds of solutions that will work in different geographies. So we can't just take a system from Germany or the U.S. and try to install it in an island in Indonesia where people live in neighborhoods where their sidewalks are three feet wide. You can't drive a truck down those streets in order to pick up trash. You certainly couldn't afford to send a truck around to pick up trash from individual homes in those neighborhoods. So we really need customized solutions that work for the particular locations where we need to solve this problem. And those may be of different types in different places. So it's not a single solution, um, but rather it's multiple types of solutions needed for different locations. So um, it's really interesting about the, it makes sense about a, Indonesia developing small streets, all that. What, what would you do? What would the solution be? Have you, have you, do these already exist and you're trying to propagate them or are you trying to b build new, whole, whole new systems? 
So in some cases, the solutions do exist. We've been to many of these communities. We've looked at the systems they have in place. We've studied best practices. Uh, DAO and other organizations have worked on a number of pilot programs uh, in the developing countries. Uh, if we take India as an example, there's lots of people doing innovative ways of collecting both recyclables and trash throughout India. Some of those systems can be replicated across the subcontinent or across the rest of Southeast Asia for that matter. And so it's a, really a combination of taking what's already there and implementing it, but sometimes perhaps coming up with something new as well. One of the problems in the developed world has been not the technology, not the infrastructure, but just the behavioral change. What do you know about uh, the typical resident in, say, Jakarta uh, in terms of his or her willingness and desire to, to be part of a recycling system? Well, what we've found from some of the pilot programs that have been done in rural Indonesia, so not talking about Jakarta now, but talking about rural Indonesia, is that people are willing to separate their trash and their recyclables. They are willing to put their trash into a container that can be collected and taken away and processed properly so that as much material can be recycled as possible and what can't be recycled can be managed effectively. But they need some education. They also need some availability of somebody to come and pick up the trash from their homes. So if they don't have anywhere to take their trash now and they're dumping it in the river, it's not because they want to pollute the environment, it's because they don't have an alternative. And we really need to offer them an alternative and that alternative needs to be available across every country for every resident. I imagine there's uh, more than a, a small amount of economic development and job creation here too for local residents. There is. So one of the things that we've seen with the pilots is that getting the local community citizens involved in the program is really, really important. So uh, Dow is not involved in this project, but for Project Stop in Indonesia, uh, what they've actually done is they've gone to neighborhoods in the communities where they're implementing their pilot programs, and they've let the neighborhood residents choose the person who will serve as the trash collector for their neighborhood. They pay them a, a small amount of money. It gives that person a job. Uh, it gives them some dignity and the ability to to earn a living, um, but it also provides a necessary service to the resident. So it's really combining the environmental advantages with the economic benefits to the person who gets paid uh, and the social benefits of having another person in the community employed in a good job. One of your partners said and did not want to be identified that this is really a massive business opportunity for, for all of you and in the sense of there's a great opportunity to bring more feedstocks in that brands and others really want and that, that the costs are lower and so it can be lower at scale, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions are lower. How much do you see this as a business opportunity as opposed to an environmental play? Uh, we fully agree that it's a business opportunity. So we've got to collect the material, we've got to process the material, and we've got to find an end-use market for all the material that we collect. Uh, one of the things that the plastic manufacturers have been looking for for a number of years is a way to acquire new feedstock. So if we look at our opportunities to acquire new feedstock from different sources than we've used in the past, we have as options to us various bio-based sources, but we also have the huge, huge amount of used plastic that doesn't go to use today. If we can somehow aggregate all of that material together so that we have enough of it that we can generate a scalable business, uh, then we can have something that the economics work on, provides environmental benefit, but importantly, provides a business benefit to all the people that are engaged in the collection and processing. So what can we expect to see in, let's say, the next year from the Alliance to end plastic waste? What, what will we be seeing and what will you hope to be developing? So we're going to work on four pillars of things. We're working on innovation, so bringing new ideas forth, working on uh, investment in infrastructure, so really starting to put in place some of the infrastructure necessary for the collection and processing uh, and turning of old materials into new materials. Um, we're going to work on engagement of local communities. Um, and then we're going to work on cleanup of some of the waste that's already in the marketplace. Uh, we've already started work on some of the activities. Uh, we started work on the Alliance, really in the activities that led to the formation of the Alliance over a year ago. So Dow, Procter & Gamble, Veolia, ExxonMobil, and a few other companies have been talking for a while on how we work together. Uh, we've identified specific to the Asia-Pacific region and Southeast Asia in particular, um, several things that we can do that we think can really help enable implementation of solutions. So one of those is creating a data set that can be managed by some third party that can help give us the information on where the waste is and how it can be aggregated so that we can turn it into new materials. Uh, we're also working on projects to put plastic into roadways, uh, which has proven very popular in both India and Indonesia and is expanding to some other countries. Um, and then we'll be working on some other projects as well. So there's lots of activities that will be coming in the next 
few months. Stay tuned for more information. Well, we'll be looking forward to tracking this and watching the progress. Jeff Worcester is Global Sustainability Director for Dow Packaging and Specialty Plastics. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's my pleasure, Joel. Thank you. As I said earlier, we're having our Green Biz Executive Network meeting this week at the Houston headquarters for NRG Energy. And here with me is Linda Clemens, the Vice President for Sustainable Solutions at NRG. Linda, we were talking earlier about some renewable energy aggregation uh, play that Salesforce and Cox and some a Gap and some other companies are doing, all in the effort of making renewables more accessible. What do you see as the big opportunity in how we bring renewables to some of the smaller players who may not be big, big uh, data center customers or others with with smaller power needs? So I think it's really impressive what uh, the aggregation team has done when they've pulled together that kind of a transaction. It's a lot of work, and it's a lot of work by uh, players who have to be really dedicated to that. For the smaller players, what NRG is trying to create is something that's much, much simpler and doesn't involve trying to get, say, five corporate legal offices to agree on one set of documentation. Uh, What we're trying to do is bring in the renewable power into NRG, and we work on the difficult negotiations of PPAs, and then we're able to translate that into actually a retail product for a smaller customer who doesn't have the load to take on an entire new renewable development. So we will cause a, uh, a new facility to be built, solar or wind, and we will translate the offtake of that through our wholesale team into a retail product. And so really merging the qualities that we have within our company and the expertise that we have from wholesale to retail. And the customer gets the benefit of knowing that a new development has been created because they showed demand and they get to buy in the same way that they always buy their energy. They get to go out through their procurement process, however it works, and are able to fix their energy costs for a period of time going forward. So explain this to me because it's a little confusing. You wouldn't build a plant until you knew that there was probably some demand for the power from that plant. How is that different from the the aggregation uh, of power purchase agreement that we were talking about earlier in the show? So the difference is, is that we will go, we are not the developer. We will actually go to any one of a number of wonderful developers in the United States, and we will look for developments that are uh, potential to be built in places where our customers have load. So we already have an idea of where a customer has load, and we will go and we will be the off-taker, the primary off-taker or the entire off-taker, uh, depending on the case and the, and the load for that particular project. Then we will take that project and we will sell the offtake to our uh, to our customers through a regular retail agreement. So our customers don't have to sign a PPA. They aren't taking on development risk. They aren't taking on construction risk. They're doing nothing other than the way you would normally sign up for your retail power in uh, in those states that allow you to have choice in who your provider is. So in effect, you're buying wholesale and selling it retail. That's exactly what we're doing versus uh, the aggregation uh, projects that have taken place, which require that everybody uh, be, if not at the same price point, um, willing to take at the same delivery point. And those uh, contracts that are developed uh, require a tremendous amount of coordination, which is very admirable, but also very difficult to achieve on a regular and routine basis. So you said there's less risk, a number of different types of risk, but one of the reasons that some companies are interested in renewable energy is a price hedge and being able to lock in energy prices for some period of time. It sounds like that's not necessarily part of the equation here. So actually, for us, we are able to pass along a fixed price to customers for a much longer period of time than traditionally we've done. So historically in the energy markets, you've looked at acquiring um, your or sourcing your energy for one to three years. That's a typical um, CNI type arrangement that you'll buy energy for a couple of years in the future and then you'll roll it to the next time period. With these arrangements, we have 10-year fixed price power that we can provide for up to 10 or 12 years. Interesting. So who's the ideal customer? So the ideal customer is is someone who is concerned about 
um, the way they're purchasing their power and looking for a renewable resource. Uh, they would like to ideally have it somewhere close to their physical locations, and they don't have uh, either experts on hand who want to deal with the technicalities and the financial burdens of being a power purchase agreement uh, counterparty. Do you think that buying renewable energy still is m- more complicated than it should be? It feels that way. I'm just wondering if you, as the market is developing and renewables are scaling at this impressive rate that they have over the past few years, it still feels complicated. I think a lot of people have done a lot of work that they may not be able to replicate. And that's frustrating to see that that sort of inefficiency when you have a company whose business is not energy, who has to really ramp up into all of uh, understanding all of the complexities around energy development and production, um, as well as managing what their own load is. Companies should be able to be what they are and do what they do best and focus on their business and allow uh, their energy purchasing to be simple. And that's what we're trying to do. The product that we're selling through this wholesale to retail conversion is called Renewable Select. And it's, it's gotten a lot, of, uh, a lot of interest and a lot of response. Well, renewable energy should be, and I hate to say this, plug and play. So uh, thanks for helping bring that along. Linda Clemens is Vice President of Sustainable Solutions at NRG. Thanks for spending a few minutes with me and thanks for hosting the meeting. Thanks, Joel, appreciate it. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go as always to greenbiz.com slash 350 for more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. Also check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. Keep those emails coming. And don't forget to subscribe to one or more of our five weekly e-newsletters. Heather's Energy Weekly comes out every Thursday, and my Green Buzz newsletter is fresh every Monday morning. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>